And my oldest son was still playing travel baseball. And I remember sitting on the side of the field and a parent said to me, hey, Kenny, how is Africa? And my wife said, he's not back yet. I would say at the time that I was wrestling with this, that I was in like a, a place where I was either going to plant a church and my wife said she'd leave me if I did that. So it wasn't really going to happen. Um, go be a missions pastor at another church. Um, be, um, you know, start a, a, a nonprofit, um, social enterprise, social justice organization, go work for one. And those were kind of what was on the table. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Red, and welcome to the Betting on Yourself podcast where I interview successful entrepreneurs, athletes, and other top performers who rose to the top, took success into their own hands, and bet on themselves. Today, I'm talking with Kenny Sipes, founder of the Roosevelt Coffee House and Roosevelt Coffee Roasters in Columbus, Ohio, a former youth pastor and current advocate for justice in the areas of clean water, world hunger, and fighting human trafficking. In this episode, we talk about Kenny's incredible, interesting path to entrepreneurship, jumping, risking it all without a net, and what it means to bet on himself. Kenny is a natural storyteller with an unconventional and exciting story to tell. If you've ever wondered if your story is finished, if you missed your calling, if time has run out, please listen to this episode. I guarantee you'll find inspiration and guidance from this remarkable man. Here's my conversation with Kenny Sykes. Kenny, let's just jump right on in, man. It's so glad for you to be on the show. We've been knowing each other for the last, I don't know, four or five years or so. Um, but when I when I think about betting on yourself, I, I thought about you and um, and all of your experiences, and I thought it'd be cool to have you share a little bit, man. Yeah, this is exciting. I'm grateful to be here. So, so people know you in Columbus as the coffee aficionado, <laughs> but I don't know if a lot of people know that for those who are listening, Kenny is a music savant as well. So they say, and. Uh, <laughs> so it, it it was cool to to once I met you through our our mutual friend and brother uh, Danny Ortiz that uh, I was pleasantly surprised to hear about your musical history, man. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just worked in urban retail, so you know, back in the day, I you know, I just worked in a store that was predominantly <laughs> selling R and B, gospel, hip hop, and and jazz. And uh, at that time, you know, there was just. Uh, Man, this is a long time ago. You know, half the people on here aren't going to realize you buy records and tapes and CDs all at the same place. But, you know, at that time, we were one of the uh, 40 most prominent independent black mu music retailers in the country. Even being a six foot three, really white, redheaded guy, that was my forte. <laughs> you know, I, was, I mean, I, I, let me throw this out there. I mean, to talk about the Roosevelt, obviously, but I just ordered some coffee from a coffee company in Texas, black owned coffee company called Three Keys. And they have this really cool thing. So in, in the coffee industry, they have a flavor wheel. So as you might have seen when you've been in the shop, you know, the flavor notes might be hazelnut and, you know, dark cocoa and, you know, orange or something. Um, and they created, um, so there's this big, huge specialty coffee wheel with all these colors and those tasty notes. Well, Three Keys Coffee made a poster where they just, they use jazz and its layers and its musicians on the flavor wheel. If you're following me, so I can go on wow. this. I can go on this wheel, and it'll say bright, and then it'll say upbeat, and then it'll take me to Ella Fitzgerald. Um, or if I go to balanced and round, it <laughs> might take me to Art Blakely. So all I have to say is like, hey, it's full circle, baby. I'm still doing coffee and music in any form I can. <laughs> Kitty is a soul brother. 
because he knows more about music than I probably do uh, on, on a, a myriad of genres. And uh, I, I just appreciate him for that, man. Um, man, I, you know, when I think about bettering yourself, I, like I said before, I thought about you and I kind of want to hear from you. What has it meant for you to bet on yourself in your journey? I'm, I think more than anything else, it's just meant I'm as, as I, I know your roles in, in the community and life. Um, you know, you just take on you bear more responsibility for other people. So although you're betting the bet on myself um, is more about number one, as you know, we'll talk about what was about making impact. That was the, the only reason I ventured into this next phase of my life. Um, but as it as it is uh, birthed and succeeded helping others and then establishing a platform for others to be employed long term, which, you know, I guess with the five year plan should have always been there. Right. But for, I think for me, it was just kind of like this is a wing and a prayer. Let's see what happens. And it happened. And it's sustained and then it made impact and then people joined that I want to see hang with me as long as I possibly can have them hang with me. So I think betting on myself more than anything else is it has given me uh, accountability for other people's lives in a way that I didn't have before I started it. And I'm, I'm sure along the way, there's been a number of moments in your life where you've had to, to bet on yourself, um, even as recently as uh, the last year or so. And we'll get into that. but. Was there a pivotal moment um, spawning from being a kid to a teenager to college years to being an adult? Is there a moment that you can point to vividly that you remember that I took a major bet on myself? Yeah, I think there's a couple. I mean, number one, um, I know you married well, and so did I. And, um, <laughs> you know, that is that is crucial. And uh, we both have um, pretty incredible women with vision. And uh, Lori in my life has got this gift of discernment um, where she can sense something's coming before I do in me. So uh, all that to say, when you say, was there a jumping off place? Was there a moment? Um, Lori and I, uh, I was wrestling. I'd been doing youth ministry for a long time. I love student ministry. I think uh, I've been, quote unquote, anointed well in that area. So I didn't really have any restlessness about ever leaving because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. But I, you know, went on a trip, uh, you know, to Lesotho, Africa, did some Cambodia experiences and just got a wrestle in my spirit. And I know um, after one of those trips, my wife said, hey, if you ever, I've been at the church probably a decade at that time. And she just said, hey, if you ever need to leave the church, I'm at peace with that. And I was like, what is that supposed to mean? And she just said, I'm just telling you, if you ever feel compelled to try something different, you don't have to come home and convince me. And so she was already there. I wasn't. I was like, you're crazy. So a couple of years later, I got restless <laughs> and we went to this conference and it was kind of one of these conferences where they, you know, you kind of write your own story and uh, they really compare it to a movie and, and every movie, you know, the, the, the protagonist is trying to get to something, but he always has to overcome something. And he has to make some inciting incident. Um, you know, what do you, what do you, what big move will you make? And um, we were at this conference and I remember we went out to dinner afterwards and she said, what do you think? And I th said, I think I'm supposed to leave the church without a plan. And she said, well, I'm not feeling that. And I was like, yeah, I don't either. But the only sense of clarity I get is that I must take a risk in a way that I don't have anything else to fall back on. 
So I would say that was the moment. Like there was just this moment. There was a couple other really inspiring or kind of like aha moments in that weekend that probably pretty much defined where we're at and why we are talking now. Um, but we did come back from that and we resisted that clarity. So for about six months, we did, I just went about things and got a promotion to church and things. And then I just like spiritually, mentally bottomed out about six months later. And the inciting incident was I walked into our executive pastor's office and resigned without a plan. Talk about that, the emotions behind that, right? Because we can spiritualize everything and we can be really ethereal when it comes to things like that. But talk about the human aspect to that, right? <laughs> of making a major risk. A major bet. And me and you've talked about this, like the, the, the courage, right. And humility that accompanies with that, that major risk. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I look back and I'm just, you know, part of me is like, if I got, and I, and I had people, Michael, and I know you do too, cause you're a dreamer and you're, you, you like to push people into their, their moments of like launching. Like if I was talking to me, I would be, you're stupid. What are you doing? You know, I think, you know, like what the <laughs> hell was behind that decision that you would do that? So I think, you know, the, the humanness is like, how did I do that? And how did Lori just say, I'm yeah. in for the ride? And how did we go and just like not have a plan and stayed on for like nine months and then kind of like catalyst into some of what we'll probably talk about now? Yeah, so I, I think it was, just, you know, there was a moment where like, but for some reason, I you know, and I can't say this is, uh, you know, I don't think there's any good business sense in what I did. So let's be clear there. But two, um, I just didn't have a total amount of fear. Like it just wasn't there. So, you know, like, so I think part of that was the sense of like, I think I can move into this and I feel confident in it. Um, and then, you know, I have a friend of mine, he's, he's a pretty incredible musician. And he said, you know, what I love about Kenny is he doesn't have a plan B. <laughs> and I don't know if that's uh, smart, but that is definitely the case. I just didn't have a plan B. So I think the human part of it was it made me sense that I'm not done and it's okay not to be done. You know, I mean, I did this at the age of 47. So it wasn't, I mean, I was in a position where most of my peer group was move into that base of what they were going to do when they were done with their career. And I was like, man, I'm going to start a new one. Wow. And, and we, and you make a great point. We live our lives committed to certainty. We love as human beings, certainty. Yeah. And, and when you engraft your life into a kingdom way of living, um, you have to get comfortable at being uncomfortable. Yep. And, you know, people look at Roosevelt and the success that you had locally here in Columbus and expanding and growing as a founder, but that was all of, all of a risk. And, and, you know, you think about it, you grew up in Minnesota and you moved to Columbus. Did your family have any part in you being a risk taker as you grew up? Did they cultivate that? Gosh, Michael, I, I'm, I'm going to say no. I mean, my dad was a station manager for a major airline for 35 years, was as super, as consistent as a human being can be. Um, and my, my mom, you know, worked in, in administrative positions over the years. So I, I, to be honest, I think even the fact that I did these things was super foreign and scary for even my parents to hear about when I'm in my forties. <laughs> so I don't think it was there. I just think, you know, I, I, I say this a lot 
and maybe you can relate to it, Michael, is somewhere along the line when I started to get restless, I wrote down a dream team. Like I just wrote, kept writing down names of people that if I launched out, they would support me. Like they would get it. And, uh, and over the years, people wow. fell off that list. And stayed. It was just my own little goofy iOS note. But um, I can tell you that the, 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 the bulk of our board is made up of those people or at some point was made up of some of those people. Um, so I think what I ended up doing is just um, surrounding myself with people that were not everybody's a risk taking dreamer, but there are a lot of people that want to jump in and support and be a part of that um, without being the risk taker. And those people are, you know, they, they were the foundation of what it took to do what I did. Well, another big bet that you mentioned earlier was the the transition from pastoring and youth pastoring um, to now being a founder. It, it Was there a major transition with that because the nuances of running a business? But I see you actually doing the same thing that you did when you were pastoring, but just differently. And and talk about that transition. And there may not be a difference in what you're doing compared to what you used to do overall. You know, I, I think you're right. I think when I did leave, there was a there was a real grieving. I mean, I've been a youth guy for 10 years. I'd taken kids on 16 domestic and international mission trips, an average of 80 to 100 kids per trip. I'm going to spend a week along with kids serving other people you know, that's just that, man, there's just, there's something super deep and life affirming and, and, uh, something that never goes away in those experiences. Um, so I think part of leaving ministry as a vocation, there was like, man, I'll never get that again, you know? Um, because, you know, you watch 13 year old kids grow up and be incredible adults. And at 25, they ask you to pastor their weddings. There's just these really, beautiful little things um, that are, are something you think you're going to lose. And the crazy thing is, as you mentioned, I, I have not lost. Um, I literally, um, the th- last three weddings I can think of, I actually pastored a wedding on the patio of the Roosevelt from a guy who fell in love with his, uh, was in love and wanted the Roosevelt to have a part in it because of their love for the shop. Um, and then this year I am marrying one guy that I actually volunteer with at the church I'm at now and another girl who uh, honestly, I haven't seen since she was this, just out of high school. And now she's like 27. She randomly called me and asked me to pass her the wedding. So I think you're right. There's a part of me. And, um, uh, but again, in, in the Roosevelt, like, you know, me, I'm gregarious. I like to be around. I don't, if you're in my, <laughs> if you're in my shop for like five days in a row, I will be sitting at your table pre-COVID. And, uh, and I mean, I've gotten employees that way. I've met incredible people like Brett Kaufman and Mike Corey and um, Sarah Arn and all these people that do yeah. community stuff um, just through those things. And um, so, you know, I think there is a beauty and maybe um, caretaking the city in, in the platform that I have. It's kind of, it's really hard to believe. I mean, to think that we can take a coffee shop and it have that kind of presence in the community. It's pretty cool. It's it's remarkable, and uh, because you're remarkable, and you love people, and it, it emanates from you when you meet you. You think about uh, you donated over one hundred twenty five thousand uh, dollars. You've impacted thousands of people around the world. Tell us and the listeners what is or where did you get the concept of Roosevelt, 
and why coffee? Great questions. Um, I would say, you know, the, I would say my, my perspective on short-term mission trips in our day and age has changed a lot. So I don't, you know, necessarily, I don't have any, like, I look back at things we did overseas and I, I see um, the beauty in some of that. And I think I they see some of the mistakes I made in some of that, but all that to say, you know, when I, I went to Lesotho, Africa in 2008 and it just, it rattled me in a way I, I can't even describe. I mean, um, I remember coming home. This is interesting. I remember coming home after two weeks serving over there. We were in Lesotho's very, you know, 90% of the people had tuberculosis. The whole generation between 20 and 40 when we were there was gone due to AIDS. Um, you know, they actually had access to clean water, but didn't even know it was a commodity. And um, and just to see the, the, the places that they could, thrive and be happy and be satisfied in, you know, compared to our selfishness here, um, just kind of rattled me. And I remember coming back after like 15 days, I came back on a Sunday and my oldest son was still playing travel baseball. Um, and I'm sure you know that world. And so like every weekend we were some city, at a four day tournament. So I came back on a Sunday, Ethan had a tournament on Friday. And I remember sitting on the side of the field and a parent said to me, Hey, Kenny, how is Africa? And my wife said, he's not back yet. And she was right. I mean, I was mm -hmm. just processing in ways that um, have complete, continue to transform the way I think today. Um, so from that was what the, the beginning of the rattle, the beginning of when Lori said, hey, if you need to leave, the beginning of, you know, trying to discover what that looked like. So that was kind of like the, some of that experience led to that. And so there just came a place where I felt like, man, how can we impact? Because human trafficking was just like, it, it's just the whole concept is crazy and it overwhelms me and it still breaks my spirit uh, to think that people are enslaved, uh, either in work labor or sex labor. And, um, and you know, we'd seen some of that in Cambodia. We worked in some orphanages and um, and I started to work with some local organizations here like Grace Haven, and she has a name to kind of uh, have my students interact with them. Invisible Children at the time was kind of bringing awareness to child soldiers in, in, uh, in Africa. And so all those things just started to stir my spirit. And, um, you know, after that uh, trip that we, I talked about where we kind of like figured out the story. Am I supposed to leave without a plan? Then we didn't leave without a plan. And then it became messy. I, I remember uh, like in, that was in May and September of that year, I jumped on a plane and went to Nashville for three days, just to dream and just to figure out like, what does this mean? And a couple mm. of things happened there. Um, one, I lived in a coffee shop every day. Um, you know, so I, you know, every day I was like, I ended up like six or seven and Nashville's coffee scene, Nashville's coffee scene is pretty incredible. And so I was really enamored, especially with a one shop called Barista Parlor. Um, and so some of that like weighed on me. And I, and then two of the organizations, three, two of the organizations we support um, came out of like meetings down there. And the funny thing is, is that, you, you know, you kind of say like, how did you get the concept? And I, I would say at the time that I was wrestling with this, that I was in like a, a place where I was either going to plant a church and my wife said she'd leave me if I did that. So it wasn't really going to happen. Um, go be a missions pastor at another church, um, be, um, you know, start a, a, a nonprofit, um, social enterprise, social justice organization, go work for one. And those were kind of what was on the table. And I remember 
one of the organizations down in Nashville that we were working with was Bloodwater Mission, what we work with now. But I'd end up a lot of things connected, and I ended up in a meeting with their uh, procurement directors, and I'm sitting in a room with them in their offices with an unscheduled appointment, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like 47 years old, haven't quite resigned yet, but know that I'm headed there, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I have no idea. I just like, and I broke and I cried in that office and, uh, because I didn't have clarity and I, I resigned in November without clarity and it became May of the next year. And I had to decide I, I got to do something. And that's when we decided let's do a nonprofit coffee shop that supports organizations fighting the injustices of hunger, unclean water and human trafficking. And that was built upon my experiences with what I'd seen in the human trafficking realm and organizations working to beat it. And then it would come out of my meetings at Bloodwater Mission, who was, was working with water wells and clean hygiene and different formats of ways to address those issues in Africa. And then, and then Buddha just, we went to a justice conference and out of that came this, okay, we've got to include a way in which we can buy meals or support meals or purchase greenhouses or do something. Um, and so those all kind of came together. And at that point, it was kind of like we had to figure out what is what is the commodity? What is the unifier to make this platform of justice work? And coffee just seemed to be the thing because everybody, um, everybody will commune in a coffee shop. You know, they don't they don't even need to buy coffee. They'll get a hot chocolate or a tea or a soda, but they will meet at the coffee shop. And I just felt if we can build an experience that's big enough so there's enough seats in it that's a little bigger than the average coffee shop and then get the community to understand that the, the commune here puts you in touch with people who are want to make a difference in the NGO world or the nonprofit world or social enterprise world. If we can create that place, then we might be able to do what has become of some of the numbers that you just threw out there. You shared a powerful nugget that I caught um, that preceded everything. And that was you went away for three days to dream. How important is it to engage solitude, which can help lead to clarity? I feel like, you know, to be honest, I feel like I was privileged enough to be there. Here, here's some things. My dad worked for that airline for 35 years. So I had free airfare until I was 24. And then I had it for life and then they got bought out and then it ended when I was 24. Right about the time I started dreaming about this, that airline got bought out again. And my mom was like, hey, why don't you check to see if there are flight privileges with this airline as, you know, um, as a child of the employee. And sure enough, I had them back. And because of that, I was able to do a little bit of this. I'd, you know, go into Nashville, um, spent, I spent one day with one guy who just like, who just prayed and just, just was a, just like a cheerleader for like eight hours. And, uh, I took a trip to New Orleans. A friend of mine was, at the time was the youth ministry professor at New Orleans, uh, uh, Baptist theological seminary. And, uh, he's like, I told him what I was doing. I didn't know what my plan was. He's like, just come down here. I'm going to put you up in, um, a dorm for two days and you figure it out. And so I think those are super important. And gosh, I really wish that I did them more, Michael, because there isn't a time that I don't walk in a park for three hours that I don't come out with some clarity, 
right? Um, and I think those are the only I I and I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge the word clarity as much as just confidence and moving toward whatever is ahead. Um, like I feel sure. like if you want to get into spiritual terms, you know, Moses led a bunch of people down a cul-de-sac and said, we're not going to die. And they're like, we're all going to die. Like there's the sea and there's the bad guys and we're done. And out of faith, he, he steps into the moment, the, the seas part and they go. And I felt like everything I did was not, in the, there was no clarity for Moses. There wasn't a, like a, a bullet point of like, here's what you do when that happens. Um, you just got to do it and it, it, it'll take care of itself. And I think some of those moments of solace and solitude are built to not necessarily create clarity, but to be at peace with where you're headed and not look back. Talk about some of the pivotal moments of the business. I, I, I remember us talking and you sharing when you first opened, you had, you know, just a, hundreds of people coming um, to be a part. Talk about some of the more pivotal moments that you've had with the business. I think more than anything else, we, you know, we, we, when we opened the doors, you know, we fundraise, we're a nonprofit. So we fundraise everything it took to get the doors open. We were about like $3,000 in debt when we opened. And it was kind of, and you just don't know me. You don't know if anybody's going to ever show up. I've, I've helped a bunch of businesses since then who, you know, they're lucky if a hundred dollars of sales happens in a day. And it just worked from day one. I think we had, you know, I had a community. Um, we had just done a pretty decent job of being social media present for like seven, eight, nine, ten months before we truly opened the doors. And so then there was like kind of like this, this, you know, this angst of waiting for this thing to occur. And then it did and people showed up. And I think I think the, the most pivotal thing is, you know, I think I remember thinking I had a uh, I live out east side of town there's a noodles and company there and and i love the manager there just because he's really engaging great guy and uh but he would always work do his work at a booth and i was like i don't like that i'm never going to be that guy working in the shop and that was a game changer to work in the shop like it just much as you related back to it doesn't look like you know the ministry looks different but it's kind of kind of you're still doing things where you're affecting other people and and speaking into their lives and I don't think that would have happened if I had not been working out of the shop. We didn't, we couldn't afford an office and I wasn't going to do anything out of home. And but to be honest, I think one of the pivotal things was that we got sustainable enough that I felt like I could delegate out. I mean, I, I was a barista 40 hours a week, the first two and a half years we were open. And in, mm-hmm. in addition to, you know, carrying the nonprofit and making the donations and running everything else. So, um, two and a half ends, I think was two and a half years in was kind of this moment of like, all right, we got to, like they can handle it. Like the, the people you've got here can do this and it'll free up your ability to, to potentially expand or do whatever those things. So the, the pivotal moments we opened in April, 2015 and 2018, we did three things. We opened a roaster. So we were roasting our own coffee. We ex- started to explore expansion into a second part of the city. And three, we, uh, partnered with a local brewery that wanted to have a Roosevelt inside the brewery. And so Mm -hmm. we negotiated a licensing deal where they literally have, you know, kind of like a Starbucks and a target. They have a Roosevelt coffee house and Olin Changey river brewing company. So those are some pivotal things where that just kind of like, I can't believe we got here. I mean, we were just, I remember what the budget was on day one and to think that, you know, we're tripling that. I mean, we don't make triple the money, but, you know, triple what we expected could come in the doors. Um, 
it just it humbles me every day, Michael. I just I I'm I'm just humbled by it. Man, your motives, uh, your motivation, your motives uh, are felt by the people. Talk about how the city has embraced you um, and embraced Roosevelt. It's it's been remarkable. It's nuts. I mean, it really is. I think you know. I, I mean, I was a suburban dad in a suburban church, so I didn't really have a, a city feel. But uh, what I learned was, um, man, Columbus loves Columbus, and there's there's a real affinity for local entrepreneur launches here, and uh, just just a lot of things timed up. You know, some people are like, "Why do you think he succeeded? Why do you think you know people?" I think sometimes, as you probably know, um, with some of the things that you've helped start and you've watched some entrepreneurs not make it, sometimes it's just good luck and timing. And I think we had a lot of timing on our side. There was a guy named David All at that time that was doing some stuff in the city. And because of his energy, you know, um, you know, I he showed up in a shop. He was in there every day. He created some local storytelling conferences that had pretty significant power of uh, creating um, a lot of entrepreneur um, connectivity in the city. Um, and then those people just started coming into the shop. I think one of the things that really helped too is that, you know, we donated from day one. So like we opened April one and on the third week of April, we had a grand opening and we donated all of our profits that day to an organization fighting human trafficking in town here. <clears throat> so I think one of the, things that kind of set us apart was that we maybe not set us apart, but sometimes you can create these kind of entities. It's like, they're going to do good things and they have a social mission. And um, what does that really look like? And we've just really been transparent and authentic about making that happen as much as possible without, you know, without going in debt ourselves. Sometimes I think we've probably been more aggressive in giving than has been um, practical in a business platform, but so far it has, it has worked. And then that authenticity has just led to people, you know, as you know, Alan Proctor in this town runs the social enterprise, you know, circle in this city, you know, he, he kind of challenged me before I opened really not to open. And then I did open and we succeeded. And then he was all in, you know, and every Tuesday pre COVID, you know, he's, he's mentoring anybody who wants to start a social enterprise every Tuesday from like nine to five. And those things just led to other things. I, I think the best way I can describe it, you know, Keto Mascara, he's a local filmmaker and Keto comes. I don't. Keto, Keto just knows everybody in town a lot like you and I know everybody in town. And his running joke is that he goes to the Roosevelt because all the people that have their schedules built out for the next three months that can't meet, he knows will be there. So he could just get 10 minutes of their ear and not worry about getting on their schedule. And that is kind of a real definition yeah. of what we become. As you know, there's probably not a time you haven't come in there where you aren't engaging, you know, a city council president <laughs> or the Columbus Foundation executive or something. And, and that's yeah. that's not like it just I think it's become a place in town where people who do that work and then people who want to do that work start to sense like this is a place I should be and I want to be and my opportunities increase to do what I want to do better because of who I see there. Um, so I, I think, again, it was good luck and timing and then word of mouth. Totally makes sense. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. You know, what has been some of the biggest challenges that you've seen with the business? 
And how, how have you navigated through those challenges? I, Alan hates it when I say this, but the bottom, I, I, I don't even, I don't know what I'm doing yet, Michael. <laughs> I'm just, I'm still trying to figure it out. Right. I mean, I'm just like, there, there, I remember, you know, we take donations. So we have to be registered with the attorney general. I didn't know that until six months after we opened and they sent me a notice like, Hey, and I'm like, Oh, I didn't know, you know? So, um, you know, I think the challenges have been, the challenges have just been, I didn't really, I didn't have any history in business or legal or any of those things. And so um, every day I'm still learning that stuff. Um, you know, I think I've delegated well. I think I've uh, learned to hire, uh, you know, subcraft, you know, our accounting and our legal and hire that out well. I, you know, I'm still learning. You know, we expanded, uh, to be honest. I don't know if we did that too soon and have hurt our long-term uh, sustainability. You know, um, you know, we were trying to figure that out pre-COVID and because of COVID, we can't really figure that out. Like, I mean, the target has moved. Um, and, you know, I, I've been kind of saying the last few weeks or months that, you know, we kind of, after five years, we kind of had a runway to success and wisdom and impact. And, you know, we kind of were riding on the road of like, this is the way the Roosevelt does it. And then, you have to shut down for 10 weeks and then you have to go do online menus, which is at the antithesis of everything a communal coffee shop that does what we do is built around. So, you know, currently the challenges are every day we make a different decision about the way it looks moving forward. And we haven't really settled on what that looks like yet. I think you've done a remarkable job in this COVID era of not only, I think, sustaining, but thriving, you know, and, and it's beautiful to stay curious and stay a novice. Um, there's beauty in that. I agree. You're, you're ever growing and ever evolving. And uh, I just so appreciate that of you, man. Um, any advice that you have for entrepreneurs in these times on starting a business? I, you know, I think my number one really more than anything else is just don't listen to the naysayers. Yeah. If I would have listened to all the people who said don't, I would have never opened, you know, and I think, there's some people I'm built to think that we can push through what doesn't look practical or wise. And there are some people that have been so practical and so wise all of their lives that they can't engage in this. And that's okay. I, I think that's great. They probably have a lot more retirement money than I do. They probably have a lot of things going their way, but I would just say, if you know, and you know, this is what you want to do, then go do that. And I think too, you know, this is just my selfishness. I'm 55 and I've never not done what I've loved, right? Like I came out of high school. I eventually worked in a drug rehab because I had been in through that experience. And um, I got to minister to people in, in their recovery. I went from there into music retail and I loved every day of music retail. And I went from there to ministry and I loved every day of ministry. And I left there and I went into nonprofit world and coffee and this, and this message I continue to say is the same. I've loved those things. Um, I would also say, you know, I think it's been exciting. I, I was reading something recently that I think more businesses have opened than closed or registered in the state of Ohio during COVID. Uh, because people are, it's during these times, recession times and curiosity, and I've got to support myself, that incredible businesses and dreams come out, come out you know, and you know, I was like, we were really struggling this past year. Like, you know, our sales dropped 40%. You 
you know, um, you know, we did probably a quarter million dollars less in sales last year. And yet our financial impact was never higher. Um, so again, we, we just re-strategized how we can continue to be authentic with our mission and accomplish what we've set out to do in spite of the circumstances. Um, and that was a dangerous, maybe, um, ploy. Um, you know, it might've been wiser just to keep money. Um, but for us, we, we, we took that risk and we made our shop super safe and, you know, we've gotten parts of campaigns that raised lots of money for people who needed food. And, you know, we donated over $25,000 in coffee bags of bags of coffee to, to uh, professionals in the medical industry who were serving people that were going through COVID. Um, so there's just, I think, uh, you know, do it like that's, that's the thing. And I know it sounds so simple, but I think the simplest business books like Seth Godin's Lynchpin or Austin Kleon's Keep Going or Steal Like an Artist, those things just give you simple, practical, move into it. And I respond and function better um, initiating those suggestions than I do a business book that's 350 pages with a bunch of systems. I feel like I'm inspired to drive something to happen and then we're going to work the system or create a system that helps make that happen. I don't know if that's helpful. No, very helpful. Very helpful. I think it was on the money. Regarding the future, you 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 make a quote. You say, I believe your investment into the day at hand will define that for you. When you talk about 10-year plans and five-year plans, talk about that just for a moment. Yeah, I, I, I've never been a five-year, 10-year plan guy because I just think, um, you know, so in 2017, did anybody make the COVID plan? You know, so I think some of those things are just unbelievably uh, arbitrary. Like, what are we going to do? So, I, again, as I mentioned, and I, I remember what that article was, um, you know, as much we need to invest as much as we can now into the moment of what we're trying to do and create. And that is planning for the future, but it is making today successful. So if we can't take what we've created and make it happen now, it certainly isn't going to have a five-year future. And then I think most importantly, what that does is that as you're on the trajectory of success and good business making and surrounding yourself with wise people, that you, when you need to make an adjustment, you do. We started a roaster. I'll be transparent. We started a roaster more than anything else. Because my right-hand man guy is somebody I want to, you know, retire knowing he's still here. Um, that wasn't the plan when we started the Roosevelt. So um, we started that roaster. That plan was like a lifetime plan. Like, let's get Frank under the belt of what we're doing and let him have ownership of every coffee we make and brew and roast. So I think sometimes we get trapped into those things. Uh, not to say we shouldn't have goals and we shouldn't set those things. Um, but sometimes for me, I'm the kind of guy that those things sometimes um, hurt the way I see things rather than just kind of like, because it, it's a, you know, you say, hey, you've done a great job. And, I, you know, you, you, you're yada, yada, whatever those things are. You know, I think it's important for us to tell people that because, you know, I'm sure as you, you you've done, I mean, there's times you probably lose sleep at night going, did I, have I done it right? Is it really working? Do people respect yeah. me? Do I, yep. am I honoring my employees? Am I honoring the people that need the help that I'm trying to provide and giving them dignity and not trying to supplement something? So I think, you know, um, 
I think you should always be learning and you should always be a sponge. I mean, my mentor is 20 years younger than me because he's better at business um, and he's savvier at making decisions. So I think we always have to remain teachable. And I feel the ones who don't dream or don't risk or um, are play it safe are the ones that just aren't willing to learn anything beyond what they already have. And I think that um, is debilitating for some people. And so I don't want that to be debilitating to me. Interesting. That is really, really good, Kenny. Really, really good. Um, last question I have for you. Sure. What would you tell if you could go back? What would you tell your 16 year old self? Mm, what would I tell my 16 year old self? <laughs> um, I think it might be, how do I say this without sounding arrogant, but I would say more, I mean, I would just say, Hey, you are a born leader. And as long as you remain humble, whatever vision you cast, people will join in. Um, and I think there's a lot of part of my life where I just didn't have that confidence and I didn't feel that way. I remember, you know, I mentioned a couple of things at that story conference we went to. And I remember we went out to dinner that night um, and I love those conferences. You know, just, this, this was really like 450 people. The guy speaking had a, a like a lounge chair and his dog on the stage. It was just like and I was just eating up. Right. We go out to dinner that night and Lori's like, hey, just so you know conference conference i'm not going back tomorrow you enjoy it it's just it's not my thing she goes but there was a moment today where he stopped the conference and he just said hey listen i need some of you out there to acknowledge that you do have like a special vision like you are born to lead and you need to give yourself permission to be that and it's not a bad thing. It's not something that you like. It's not arrogant to come out with that. Like, know that that's who you are so that you can accomplish what needs to be done. And I remember sitting in my chair during that conference thinking, just weeping, like, I'm that guy, but I don't know how to like convey that. And uh, we, went, we went out to dinner. She goes, but remember that time during the, today that, that he stopped the conference and he called out people who have vision? She goes, that's you. That's you. Like, so whatever you do, I don't need the conference to know that whatever you do, I'm going to support it. So know that, you know, that was just super affirming for where we were headed and to know that we are, that I was on the right trajectory. So that 16 year old self, I would just say, like, when you feel like it's not humble, just check yourself. If you're not injuring people, if you're not mean, if you're not, you know, a jerk, you're not, you know, disregarding what people think, it's not arrogant to step into your leadership and take ownership of it and just lead. And, um, and that was, you know, that would probably be the thing I would say the most, because I probably spent 15 years oblivious to any of that kind of thinking. Couldn't have said it any better. Kenny, you, you are sharing with us why Roosevelt is successful, because it, it all emanates from you and your wife and your heart for people. I salute you, my friend, and and thank you for being you, and thank you for being on this podcast today. Thank you, brother. I, I appreciate you. I love you, and I'm grateful uh, for who you are and what you do. I love you back, man. You, you've heard it from Kenny Sipes, and there's an understanding now that from everybody who's listening to this podcast, why Roosevelt is one of my favorite places in the city of Columbus. So remember this. You are the secret to your success. Thank you for listening. Well, I told you, 
This has to be one of the most inspiring episodes we've done so far. Kenny is a wonderful example of many things, not least which being an inability to give up and his radical trust in God for his future security. Your life is a picture of faith and betting on yourself. Thank you for coming on the show, Kenny. You can follow Kenny on Twitter at Kenny Sipes and at Roosevelt Coffee. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Michael Red, and remember, you are the secret to your success. <laughs>